Matthew 21. We, of course, are in what is classically called Passion Week. Sunday was Palm Sunday, and so we're going to tonight cover a, a lot of scripture that will walk us through the final week of the time just before Jesus' crucifixion. But in um, the chronology of the New Testament, we're going to pick it up in Matthew 21. If we uh, go back to chapter 20, verse 17, it says, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, you know, behold just means, means check it out or, you know, look at this. Check it out. We are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. So, you know, as you read the Gospels, um, all the Gospels um, present Jesus coming onto the scene and demonstrating power over every aspect of reality, over um, every aspect of the human existence, over health, life, death. He has knowledge of men's thoughts. Um, and then he has power over uh, nature. He um, calms storms with just a word. He um, um, has power over the physical elements in um, multiplying and miraculously providing food with, you know, from supernatural power. Um, he has power over the spiritual realms, uh, commanding um, fallen angelic forces with just a word. And um, stuff like that had never been seen before. And so uh, he comes onto the scene and demonstrates that power. And, of course, opposition to him grows. And now he's going up to Jerusalem for the feasts, uh, the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. And it was required that every able-bodied male Jew could, who could travel to Jerusalem uh, should be there. And so he is, of course, fulfilling that. And he knows that uh, all those shadows, foreshadows, those types loaded into this feast, the Passover, will be uh, fulfilled. Uh, this cycle of the Passover where he will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, you know, he's saying this to his disciples as we just read, but they don't quite get it. It's going to take them by surprise. But he has a lot of scripture to fulfill here. And so uh, that was a, a few days before um, what we would call Palm Sunday, what we read in chapter 20, verse 17, 18, 19. And he's staying, um, he's staying in Bethany at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus um, and splitting his time also at some guy's house named Simon the leper. And um, uh, so... Here he is now on Sunday, beginning of chapter 21. He is going to fulfill a very important scripture. We know that as the triumphal entry, uh, Palm Sunday, where, where Palm Sunday gets its name from. Uh, verse 1, 21. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, 
The Lord will have need of them, and immediately he will send them. You know, I can imagine two strangers walk into town, and, you know, they go over to your house and take your, your animals from the front of your house. Of course, you're going to say something. Well, Jesus um, uh, has already... Um, you know, has already loaded them with, with what they need to obey the scriptures, uh, uh, obey him, and um, in his knowledge, he knows that they will let them go. And so, verse 4, all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, this is out of Zechariah chapter 9, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And... Um, so, verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. So Jesus is, is setting up this event. Um, he's going to present himself um, in a very messianic, um, deliberate fashion, fulfilling scripture, Zechariah 9, and then also we're going to see uh, Daniel chapter 9 um, presenting himself to the city of Jerusalem as the Messiah. But notice verse 6, please. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. Oh, you could, that, that applies to that situation right then, right there. But boy, you could apply that to any point in any disciple's life, right? I mean, that's what discipleship is, isn't it? We go and do what Jesus tells us to. And so um, there you go. That's discipleship. And they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Traditionally, it's seen that they cut down palm branches, but they would also cut down citrus tree branches. Um, and so they're laying down garments on the road, and there's, there's all this, um, uh, this vegetation. They're, they're making a beautifully lush, colorful, royal robe a road for him to ride in on. They understand what's happening here. Verse 9, it says, And the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, you could, you could understand that this way. Blessed in the name of the Lord is he who comes. And then Hosanna in the highest. Uh, Hosanna is one of those words that um, you know we we toss around in in worship. Uh, it means save now to the most to the max. Uh, kind of sometimes is 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 seen as bring prosperity, um, rescue us, Hosanna. So um, when he come into Jerusalem, the whole city was moved, saying, "Who is this?" So the multitude said, "This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth, not prophet from Nazareth of Galilee." Okay, so this is Palm Sunday. He's fulfilling a very important scripture. They are quoting from Psalm one eighteen, which is a messianic psalm, which happens to be where we left off in scripture. It's a nice alignment of of scriptures and time. Um, this is a fulfillment of uh, Daniel chapter 9. Um, if you go back to the book of Daniel, um, it's on page 786 in my Bible. I don't know if that helps you, but um, uh, Daniel is the recipient of an uh, important um, prophecy, really the key to understanding God's timetable. 
in uh, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24, 25, 26, 27. We're not going to go through all of it. Uh, we're just going to read it very quickly. It says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. An angel is speaking to Daniel the prophet. Well, Daniel is a, an executive, a cabinet member in Babylon. And uh, he has been uh, fasting. An angel brings this um, revelation to him. And he records it here as an angel speaking. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, speaking of Jews in Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Very significant things going on there. But he gives us a timetable, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from, and here's some time markers now, from the going forth of the command to restore it and build Jerusalem, there's one time marker, and then until, here's the other end point of this, until Messiah the Prince, okay. So there's a time marker, and at the end of that, this time phrase he's going to talk about, that will be, the point where the Messiah will show up. Here it is. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and the streets shall be built again, even the wall, even, since, even in troublesome times. After the 62 weeks, okay, he said seven weeks, 62 weeks, that comes to 69. After those 62 weeks, that were preceded by seven weeks, so a total of 69 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off but not for himself. Um, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now, if you kept track of those weeks, we'll explain what weeks are in just a minute. You know that then there's 70 weeks. We had 69, and there's a last one. There's the last one. Middle of verse 27. The middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Very far-reaching prophecy, which we don't have time to cover all of it. The time frame they're speaking of reaches from um, where Daniel is out until Jesus returns the second time at the end of the tribulation. That's a long period of time. Um, and there is a gap loaded into there. Um, there's seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then there's, a, there's, a, there's another uh, last week. Well, when I say the word decade, what, you know what I mean, right? Period of 10 years. Okay, well, their, their term would be week. If, if they said a week, they, they wouldn't think of seven days. They would think of seven years. Okay, and, and here's another little thing that they operated on. They operated on a 360-day annual calendar when they talked about prophecy. So if we plug all this in, we pull out some time markers and can know some things here. It says that from this first time marker that the angel is delivering to to Daniel, this uh, command to restore and build Jerusalem. And that's an important thing. Remember, during the time that Daniel's alive, Jerusalem's in ruins. It's uninhabited. And um, the Lord is saying through this angel, through this prophecy, we're going to go back to Jerusalem, and it's going to be restored. 
when that official decree is given by the um, ruling uh, political entity in the world, when they officially issue that decree, you can start counting days. When the end of those days, those 69 weeks, when that, when that 69th week, the last day, will be the day the Messiah presents himself. Well, we do the math. Uh, 69 weeks times seven, we- seven years per week, right? Times 360 days. I know that you're doing that math in your head, right? Carry the fourth. And, uh, it comes to uh, 173,880 days. Okay. Well, we have those markers given to us. Um, the the uh, command to restore and build Jerusalem was given uh, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, um, uh, by Artaxerxes. And, and the encyclopedias and the historians tell us that happened on March 5th, 444 B.C. So there you go. There's your first time marker. Um, and from there, we go forward 172,880 days. We come to the end of March, AD 33. And that happens to be the very day that Jesus walks in on this Palm Sunday that we pick up in Matthew chapter 21, as recorded in the other scriptures. Um, so he's, full, he's the only one fulfilling that scripture. Um, you know, you've got, you got to ask yourself, okay, when we look across the things that the Lord is saying in the scriptures, he's saying he's going to bring one individual, one unique individual into the world who's going to perform the Lord's will in dying for the sin of the world. How do we know who he is? Well, the Lord has given us um, prophecies ahead of time that we might identify him. And this is the most significant in a lot of ways because it tells us the very day that the Messiah has to present himself. If anybody presents himself on any other day, sorry, cancel his Messiah card. He's not him. Um, Don't believe him. The only person who rode into Jerusalem on that, uh, uh, I've got it as March 30th. I've heard other dates of April 2nd, but March 30th, AD 33, that Sunday, was Jesus of Nazareth. And he did it in a very uh, specific way. It tells us in Matthew 21, he's riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, out of Zechariah chapter 9. Hebrew scriptures say, your king is coming to you, lowly, sitting on a donkey. Lucky donkey that day, right? Good day to be a donkey. Um, wins that one. Um, he, uh, he rides this donkey into the city of Jerusalem, fulfilling Zechariah 9, Daniel chapter 9. The only one in history who has done that on that day. The only one who satisfies the scriptures. They recognize that he is fulfilling that the, the multitudes realize that he is um, fulfilling um, Zechariah 9, and so they are crying out out of Psalm 118, very messianic terminology, Hosanna to the son of David, the son of David, not a son. There's lots of sons of David. He had lots of offspring, lots of descendants. But the unique one who would be the anointed brought into the world, they are calling him the Messiah, um, at this point, uh, if we pick up other events from other Gospels, we would see in Luke 19 that as he approaches the city uh, after this, um, he weeps over Jerusalem because they don't know the time of his coming. 
Um, but here we go. Um, this would be Sunday. So the, the, um, he goes into the temple um, and leaves for the day then after this happens. Okay, we jump now to Monday in, in our chronology in Matthew. It says, verse 12, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who, brought and, who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold dove. Again, this is the next day. So the next day he goes into the temple and cleanses it. Now, what was going on in the temple was, um, again, at the feast days, uh, a lot of people would travel from very far out of town and they would want to come to glorify the Lord, to worship the Lord at these feasts. And what they would be met with in the temple courtyards would be uh, very discouraging. Um, they would find um, uh, basically a scam set up by the high priest and his relatives. Since they had a monopoly on approving the sacrifices that would be used in the temple, uh, they had rigged it so that um, you had to pay exorbitant fees, exorbitant prices for temple-approved sacrifices. You know, if you're traveling from a long distance, you can't bring a little lamb with you. You know, it might get hurt on the way. It's just too difficult to travel with animals in an effective time. So you would bring your money, you would go to the temple, and then you'd, you'd buy a temple-approved sacrifice. Well, when you got there, you know, the price is four and five times what you could have paid at home. And, you know, you kind of sense you're being ripped off, but your heart's towards the Lord, and so you pay the price. What, can you, what else can you do? But there was more. Um, they wouldn't accept your money. You're from out of town, and you've got a Roman denarius, or you've got, you know, a Greek lira, or a drachma, or whatever they're using. Sorry, that's pagan money. You can't use that in the temple. You have to go exchange your money. Well, okay, guess who ran the, the money exchange booths, too? Yeah, the high priest and his family. And the exchange rates were heavily uh, lent, uh, leaning towards favoring um, them making a lot of money. And so then you had to go, you know, your, your dollars are slowly getting whittled down here. You sense this, you're being ripped off. And um, so this is what Jesus is, is um, confronting in the temple, in the temple uh, courtyards. It says he, uh, he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And um, unfortunately, you know, today uh, you can still find people ripping off um, those who want to come to the Lord and um, make merchandise, is the terminology, make merchandise of them, urging them to give. If, if you want to, you know, if you want to uh, honor the Lord, you need to make a thousand dollar donation, you know, tonight. And people who have big hearts and are open to the Lord, they hear that, they'll do it. So we'll have the ushers come forward at this time and we'll take a double tithe offering. No, um, um, no, <laughs> we will uh, never go there. Um, uh, um, you know, money gets abused in religious settings. And so, um, 
you know, we're never going to push anybody to give. We, we don't want this to be about anybody's money. Uh, we don't want people to come and find that kind of thing. We want them to come and meet the Lord. And um, so Jesus is very upset with this. And, uh, you know, sweet Jesus only kissing babies. And, you know, he paintings show him glowing in the dark with a halo over him. And No, he's mad. He's upset. Other scriptures tells us he takes and fashions a whip of cords. And uh, he makes quite a commotion. One person to clear out this kind of real estate of like, a, you know, a couple of acres. Wow, you really got to be motivated <laughs> to get those people out of there. And so um, he gets it all out. Verse 14, then, then the blind, the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. I like that. After the cleansing, then there's healing. Then there's the work of the Spirit. Um, but the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, the children saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. They were indignant. Oh, well, uh, greed and theft is okay, right? But praise for Jesus isn't. Okay, it says a lot about where they're at. And, he, and they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. <laughs> I like that, yes. Have you, just a nice, clean, straightforward answer. Have you never read, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise? That's out of Psalm 8. And then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Again, that's where he's staying, is Bethany. Um, so really, that's kind of about what we know about Monday, um, except for verse 18 and 19 here. Um, verse 18 and 19 talk about Monday morning, before he went in and cleansed the temple. It says, Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. Now the, the cursing of the fig tree happens on Monday morning, and immediately the fig tree withered away. They would have seen that Tuesday morning as they came back to the uh, temple. The other Gospels tell us. Um, what's this with the... with? This is kind of a destructive thing for Jesus to do, right? I mean, there's only really one other time where Jesus does something destructive in a miracle. And that is with the pigs, remember? The pigs uh, had the demons cast into them, and they all ran down to the thing. And, uh, I'm, and so this is really the only second time that we've seen um, something destructive. What's with this anyways? Kind of funny. Uh, he goes up to a fig tree that is advertising that it is alive. It, it shouldn't have leaves at this time unless it had also figs. And so he goes up to it, finds no figs, and says, let no fruit grow on you ever again. The thing dies. Um, what's this about? Well, again, it's false advertising. Having a sign of life but no fruit. Uh, that's the problem. And, um, you know, that's not what, what the Lord wants from us, what he, what from anybody. And, it, and really, this is something about really aimed at, at uh, the nation of Israel in some ways. Um, 
because the nation of Israel at this time has signs of being alive, but they don't have any fruit. And so um, it's just all appearance. Verse 20, when the disciples saw it on Tuesday morning, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Um, now this is a, uh, uh, out of this fig tree lesson comes a lesson on prayer and faith. Um, it's not as it gets mishandled by um, the word faith movement. Um, see, God wants, you just claim it and you can get anything. And, and so you just claim your prosperity and so then you get it. No, he's speaking to disciples who are following him. And uh, you can't take this scripture out of context and apart from other scriptures. Um, there's the other scriptures say, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When you are so in tuned, when we are so in tuned with heaven and the Lord's will, we will want what he wants. And when we get into a situation, we'll pray along the lines of what he wants. And those will be what we want. And then we'll see the Lord act and do those things. It's not to make God a vending machine and just ask for things and get them from him. So verse 23, now when he came into the temple Tuesday morning again, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? They, they, you know, he's really disrupted what they were doing there. So they, you know, they are challenging him. Jesus answered and said to them, okay, question and answer time. Uh, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. You ask me a question, I ask you a question. We answer each other's questions, okay? That's, that's the way we're doing this. Here's my question, he says to them, verse 25, The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? Okay, so... And then it says, and they reasoned among themselves. You know what they did? Okay, huddle up, guys, as, as if they, they need to think about this. You know, that's always a bad sign. When you can't give Jesus a straight answer and you've got to go think about it, uh, there's something wrong. So they have this, this little unholy huddle. What do we say? Um, well, and here, here's how they're reasoning. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then, you, why then did you not believe him? They can't say he's from heaven because they didn't listen to him. They rejected him. So the only thing left is to say it's just a work of the flesh. It's from men. It's got nothing to do with God. But they know that nobody in the crowd is going to accept that out of their mouths. So they can't give him an answer. They're not willing to deal honestly with the things the Lord had already done and spoken to them. Really, they're not judged, they're not competent to judge anything about the Lord until they answer some basic questions. So, they say, uh, verse twenty-six. But if we say for men, will we fear the multitude? For all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, you know, ready, break, and here we go out of the huddle. 
And they said, uh, we don't know. And he said to them, okay, well, neither will I tell you that by what authority I do these things. You don't answer my question, I won't answer yours. Verse 28, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. But he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And that one answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. So which of the two did the will of his father? And they answered him, they said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. (laughs) Ooh, uh, that's not going to go over well, Jesus. You sure you want to say that? Um, Those who who were hearing Jesus were those who knew they needed a Savior, who were deep in sin, their lives were broken. And uh, those are the people that the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious professionals looked down upon. Verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. Well, there's your answer. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. Well, here another parable, he says to them, if they didn't understand the first one. This is a two-parable kind of explanation. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. So here's a responsible uh, farmer, you know, developing his land, um, doing all the things necessary to ensure he's got a, a good land and he's set up for um, all things to, to reap a bountiful harvest. Um, in the idioms that are loaded here, a vineyard, uh, right out of Isaiah, uh, Israel is called the vineyard of the Lord. So... Uh, They may have sensed something about that, but I don't think they want to own up to it yet. Um, And he leased it out to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did likewise to him. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him, cast him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? A little reading, you know, parable comprehension test here, see if you've understood it there, talking to the scribes and Pharisees there, gathered, the elders. They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vine dressers to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. That is the appropriate interpretation of that. However, it's about them. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That happens also to be from Psalm 118. And, um, um, of course, the idiom of the stone goes way back in scriptures um, to the time of the Exodus 
when there was a stone, that, a rock that followed them. Uh, in the First Corinthians, it talks about that, that stone being a type of Jesus. And um, here it is plainly stated that um, uh, the Messiah in terminology of the stone, the builders being the, those who are supposed to be the most spiritual, the leaders of Israel, the leaders of the Israel would reject the Messiah. Verse 43, Then I say to you, from the kingdom of, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. That's, that's pretty straightforward there. I like, I like it when Jesus is nice and straightforward like that. I can understand that. And then verse 44, very important. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Um, you know, in, in the presentation of the Messiah into the city of Jerusalem, Jesus is not the one on trial. We are. Um, what he presents is himself as he is, which will not change. He is the Messiah, the sent one from the Father, uh, the Son of God come to die for the sins of the world, and this, who, who clearly identifies, is identified by the prophetic scriptures fulfilled. He says, um, here I am. You have a choice. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken. Coming to the Lord requires brokenness requires a yielding and a rejection of our own pride to come and admit that we need a Savior, that we're sinners, uh, that, that in that brokenness um, we come and we, f- we throw ourselves on the mercy of God. The good news is that he's ready to catch us. Um, he's ready to receive us. And he's already provided through that Messiah all that is needed to put us in right standing with him through what the Messiah accomplished in his perfect life and in his death and in his resurrection, uh, he gives those who come to him perfect righteousness before him and uh, um, that's standing before him as an adopted child. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken. Okay, that's the first one. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. That sounds painful. Um, that is the other side of the equation. Um, and that is to uh, reject the free gift of salvation that the Lord offers. And that forces God to deal with people in a way he'd rather not. But it's their choice. And if they want to um, end their life without receiving that free gift of salvation and they force God to deal with them in truly terrifying ways. They have to pay for their own sin. And uh, the scriptures are clear, clear about that, that that is an eternal penalty. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Okay, good. So they all repented and changed their mind. No, verse 46, but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they, the multitudes took him for a prophet. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, 
The kingdom of heaven, chapter 22, we're continuing on. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Again, another familiar biblical idiom of uh, a wedding and a bride, the bride of Christ, Jesus being the bridegroom. He sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and and they were not willing to come. Okay, now, in um, royal weddings, especially at this time, it was a you know, once-in-a-lifetime event. Uh, it's not something that happens you know, a couple of times a year. Oh, we can skip this one. It's coming back around again in a few months. No, huge, huge, very important event in the, uh, in, in the life of any nation, a royal wedding. And no expense would be spared. Um, and those who were invited, you know, it's the privilege of a lifetime. But here is a very, very strange response. They were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, look, 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 I've got it all prepared, my dinner. Oxen and fatted cattle are killed, you know, it's just the spread of food, it smells good, come on in, it's the party's ready, the mariachi band, it's all there. Um, And all things are ready, come to the wedding, verse 5. But they made light of it, yipes, and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. If that wasn't bad enough, the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Uh, um, You know, there's two invitations here. There was the first invitation, and then there was a second invitation. People see that this is fulfilled in type by first Jesus, the first invitation, and then the apostles. Uh, But when the king heard about it, he was furious in the parable symbolism, and he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their cities. Um, You know, that sounds a lot like uh, what happened with um, the city of Jerusalem, AD 70, when General Titus went in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So their servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. I like that the bad were invited. I can find find an entrance in there in that terminology. Um, Wedding hall was filled with guests. Okay, here's another thing that would happen. You know, it was such a big to-do, the royal weddings, um, no expense would be spared, and, and the average person probably wouldn't have the, the necessary garments um, to uh, res- you know, give a proper respect to the event, and so the royalty would probably provide them with garments to make it just the highest and most beautiful thing you'd ever seen. And so everybody's in there, and they're dressed in these, you know, these specially made garments, just beautiful. Everybody's clean and smiling. Their hair's done. And so when, so you know, it's full of guests. What it says there, the wedding hall was filled with guests, and they're all just beautifully adorned. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Well, well you're you're kind of funny looking. Uh, you're not wearing the proper garments. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Yeah, what does that say? How did that guy get in there? 
Well, there's only, there's only really one of two options. One, he snuck in. Uh, okay, and that doesn't work. <laughs> um, you know, in the idiom here, there's only one door to come in by salvation. And Jesus claimed to be that door. There, there's no getting in some other way. No one's sneaking in over the wall in some other way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The other way he could have gotten in is he got to the door, said, nah, my clothes are good enough. And, he, and people at the door said, okay, <laughs> are you sure about that? You might want to think about that. No, 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 I think I look good enough. I'll just go in. And so then he's in there, and he is not properly attired. And uh, he sticks out like a sore thumb. It's been a rejection, really, of what the king has provided. That's the insult. And uh, you see where that fits in Scripture, right? Isaiah 61 says, uh, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, um, in the idiom, you know, when we come to Jesus, he clothes us in his righteousness. We don't want to try to present ourselves with our own works of righteousness. The terminology there is gross. It really is offensive. The King James glosses over the real terminology when it says all our righteousness is as filthy rags. Um, and uh, the idiom also is given in Zechariah 3 where the, the picture of the high priest, he's wearing filthy garments. Again, that, the terminology is really offensive. And, and the English language kind of glosses over it a little bit. But those dirty garments are taken off of him in that picture in Zechariah 3, and he's given beautiful robes. Continues in here this way that, that um, in the idiom, the Lord clothes us in his righteousness. Verse 13, Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. Yipes! And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, this, this goes from the wedding to something much, much more serious. For many are called, but few are chosen. Verse 14 is the lesson there that Jesus appoints out of that. What does that mean? Well, this nation of Israel was called, was chosen, um, and they had that privilege of being the first ones. You know, the scripture says, to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. And um, many are called and few are chosen. The Jews had the privilege of being the chosen ones. And, uh, but the call goes out to the whole world. And so um, then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. So again, this is still Tuesday, it seems like. And so uh, after these parables and this confrontation, they go back for lunch or whatever, and they start talking on how to trip this guy up. They've got to discredit him. So they think, okay, he's always in the temple teaching. Let's ask him some questions and see if we can get him to say something really stupid and discredit himself. I don't think that's going to go very well for them. Um, So the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. Now their disciples, the Pharisees, had a great deal of animosity for the Herodians. 
But their mutual contempt for Jesus overrides that. So here they come saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They think they've got him. If you pay taxes, you know, the, the, the crowd, the average person is going to go, boo. That's the end of his popularity. If he says, don't pay taxes, well, we have some centurions right here who will be taking this down, and, and that will not go well with you either. Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. Jesus is totally in control. They don't have him mystified. He said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. He said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Wow, what an answer. (laughs) You'd think they go, okay, I give up. I'm going to follow you now. Uh, When they heard this, they they marveled and they left left him and went their way. Um, He basically says, the government has legitimate requests uh, made upon you. Um, You're responsible um, to the powers that be. Uh, You know, you need to be obedient to them in civil and national matters. But the image of God stamped on us undeniably leaves us in a place where we need to give to God um, preeminent obedience. And um, we, uh, he, he owns all of us. And so, um, scriptures say that in Romans 13, right? Be obedient, pay your taxes. The same day, the Sadducees, of course, they get together, they hear that they've uh, Jesus has you know, made roadkill out of the, the Pharisees in their question and answer, who say there is no resurrection, they think they can, they can do, okay, here, you know, the, the JV team's off the floor. Let's put this, the seniors in here. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him. Sadducees would be the equivalent of today's very liberal uh, theologians who basically deny a lot of, uh, uh, of what the Scripture says about spiritual things. They denied a resurrection. They denied... Um, angels, really, they were very rationalistic. If they couldn't understand it and explain it, they rejected it. And really, they only accepted the first five books of the, of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And so they're going to try to catch him up in this uh, idea, in, the, in their rejection of the, um, the resurrection, they're going to try to capture him in that. They come to him and they say, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. That's true. Uh, continuation of the, of the family name, very important. If a man doesn't produce any offspring that would inherit, then a near relative would provide offspring through the wife. And so um, here, here's their scenario based on that. Verse 25. Now there were... Uh, with us, seven brothers, the first died after he had married, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, you know, you can kind of see them, you know, <clears throat> the resurrection, <clears throat> rolling their eyes. Whose wife will the, uh, of the seven will she be? For they all had her. And so Jesus said, wow, you know, I've never thought about that. I have no idea. Um, 
Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. Okay, if you've got a pencil, take that word mistaken and line through it. It's not nearly strong enough. That's uh, the word deceived. Uh, they aren't just like putting an extra teaspoon of, you know, a mistake. I put an extra teaspoon of sugar in the cookies, but it's okay. No, it's far more serious than that. Uh, they are deceived. Uh, they believing falsehood. Um, and here's the reasons, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Extremely intelligent, high-educated people, they don't know the scriptures, nor do they know the power of God. God isn't restricted by what we know as the order of life now. And so um, they don't know the Bible, they don't know the power of God, and then he explains verse 30. For in the resurrection, and in that he validates that there is a resurrection, he says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Um, the next life will not be a continuation of this world and its arrangements. It will be a completely different order. Um, and it will be a higher order so that marriage won't be necessary. Marriage is, is necessary down here for a lot of reasons, and it's good. When we are with the Lord, that existence will be so high and so complete, we won't need marriage. So um, he says, they're not given in marriage, but are like angels. He doesn't call them angels. We, we, you know, I'm sorry to, to pop your bubble about um, uh, it's a wonderful life, but uh, angels don't get their wings that way. You know, people don't become angels. It doesn't happen. Uh, concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Okay, now he, ex he explains um, that these three guys out of the Old Testament, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, are still alive and very much well and before the Lord. Um, in, in the terminology, he goes back, it's in the first five books of the Bible, which they would have accepted. Note, I really like the phrase there, it says, have you not read, was read what was spoken to you by God? Yeah, the Old Testament is written to you. Who is you? Don't raise your hand. I know you are you. Um, the Old Testament's written to all of us. I, I always have a problem when I hear um, that churches aren't teaching through the Bible. The Old Testament has nothing to say. Yes, it does. It's written to you. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. To ignore the Old Testament, especially in 1 Corinthians says, all those things were written beforehand upon whom the end of ages have come. Uh, uh, for us, upon whom the end of ages have come. Uh, written for our, our, our learning. I like that. Spoken to you by God. And what does he say? He says, I, in, in this passage, he's pulling out of the, of the burning, bush pas burning bush passage. And... Um, where Moses is spoken to by God and says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, if in the Sadducees' theology, 
God had to speak according to their theology, he would have had to said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they rejected the continuation of life past the grave. And so for God to say, I am, means that they are still alive and well and with the Lord. And so um, he explains the scriptures to him, going back to Exodus chapter 3. So when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Okay, here we go. They thought they'd like to go in and get beat up one more time by Jesus. Then one of them, a lawyer, now when you think of lawyer, don't think of it in terms of today. A lawyer at that time would be somebody who was an expert in the law. Um, as someone who copied the scripture all the time, an expert in all the things that were written there. Um, A lawyer came to him asking a question and testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now that's an important question, because when you read the Old Testament, as they did, they went through and gathered up all the things that the Lord had said about commandments, and they came up with some 609, 612 different commandments. But more more importantly, they also interpreted those. What do those mean? And they produced about 50 volumes of what all that meant. Nobody could possibly keep all of that. And so given all that, someone said, well, let's find the most important ones. And if we keep those, then we'll get all the other ones right. It's a good question, actually. Very good question. Which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to them, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so uh, Jesus answered this very succinctly, very accurately. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your mind. Um, You know, we could spend a lot of time studying that scripture, um, what the heart is, what the soul is, what the mind is. Uh, Suffice it to say, there isn't anything left out of our life. There isn't anything that shouldn't be gathered up under love for God. Uh, All things should be done to glorify him and to um, see him Uh, glorified in our lives. Nothing's left out. Who's done that perfectly? Raise your hand. My hand's not up. No. Okay, yeah, nobody has. That's right, because nobody has. And in the second law is like it, you shall love the neighbor as yourself. It's not saying you have to love yourself first and then you'll be qualified to go and love your neighbor. No, it, it presupposes you already have a great deal of love for yourself, but that you should be equally as concerned for your neighbor as you are for yourself. Again, if you've done that, go ahead and raise your hand up. I don't see any hands. My hand's not up either. Um, on the, and it's funny because the, the law summed up in these two, it doesn't take much of an examination to realize we've broken that. And so there needs to be a restitution, a demand by the law for justice. And, um, you know, Jesus came to pay that right? It would, it's funny then that he says this, on these two commandments hang 
all the law and the prophets, you know? Um, the term, I think he could have used a lot of different verbs there, but he used the word hang, all the law and the prophets. He is going to hang on a cross to take the penalty that we deserve because we have not fulfilled those scriptures. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, okay, question and answer period, continues on here. He says, um, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. That's correct. That's only half of it. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Uh, okay, that's a quote out of Psalm 110. And um, no patriarch, no patriarch of a family would ever call one of his descendants Lord. Wouldn't happen. And yet here is David calling his descendant Lord, the descendant, his, his particular descendant that's promised. And so there's, a, there's a, some sort of thing where saying he's David's son, but he's also his Lord. They are missing the picture there. And they can't answer it. Verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word because they, they correctly identified the Messiah, the coming Messiah, Jesus, as the son of David, but they did not correctly identify him as the son of God also. And um, that's why David called his descendant Lord, because he is God on earth. But they, they had not seen, they had rejected that, they had overlooked that, Verse 46, I like from uh, no one able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Well, that was as far as we're going to get tonight. We were planning on getting to Luke 21, but we're going to have to pick it up on Good Friday as we make our way through Passion Week. Let's stand and pray as we finish here tonight. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the wisdom you lay out in your word and things you accomplished, Lord, in your last week. Help us to live in light of what you have said and what you have given us. Thank you, Lord, for all you have accomplished for us and given to us. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.